Welcome to Emmaus Church Community. My name's Nathan. Welcome if you're joining us at home. We're glad that you've tuned in with us. I hope you'll participate, that you won't spectate, um, and that you will engage in this beautiful, stabilizing rhythm of worship, right? It is crazy. It's crazy. I said that about 19 times an hour over the last week, and this is a stabilizing practice that we need. We can root ourselves again in the Word of God. We can orient our lives again around the, uh, the reality of a good God who is here with us. Amen? So we want to celebrate that. We want to dig deep. We want to invite the Word of God to speak to us in the midst of the chaos and the craziness. Uh, we want to open up our hearts so that we can be, um, so we can be readable by the word, right? We don't want to just read the word. We want the word to read us, expose the rough edges, call us into repentance, and assure us in our fear and in our, um, in our anxiety of what's real and what's true, right? Good. Come on in. Glad you're here with us. One of the things that I love so much about the Bible is that it is alive. I love how it speaks to my life, how it speaks to my context how it speaks to my concerns. Now, this doesn't happen all the time. Uh, sometimes reading the Bible is just a straight-up discipline. You just do it because you value the Word of God and you know you need to have the voice of God in your life. But there are times, and I hope you've experienced it, and I believe that we as a community are experiencing it, when the Bible seems to be tracking with your life. The Bible seems to be speaking to your concerns. If you uh, you got to be reading the Bible in order for this to happen, okay, so there's that basic uh, prerequisite. But if you are reading the Bible, you will experience seasons in your life where the Word of God is speaking to you. Um, not in this general sort of, um, you know, it's so vague, it speaks to whatever I think. No, specifically, precisely, issues, concerns, realities. Last summer, I was camping with my family at, at um, the Manresa State Park and the beach there, and I was reading through Acts. And I got the sense as I was reading through Acts on the beach, we should preach through this next summer, which is now. So I scoped it out, and I, and I had the main ideas for the first six sermons. I was going to preach through the first six chapters of Acts. I did this a year ago. I decided that I'd preach through Acts, and I worked out the main ideas for the last several week sermons a, a year ago. And... Um, it's been almost spooky to me how relevant the word has been to our cultural context in this moment. I'm not trying to be relevant. I'm not trying to be edgy. I'm not looking through my Bible trying to find a verse that will apply to what's happening in our culture today. We planned this a year ago, and the Lord is just using his word to, I think, open our eyes and direct our thoughts and hopefully challenge us to embrace the gospel here in, um, in our context. So my goal is to faithfully preach the word um, according to its original context, which is the Middle East 2,000 years ago. My second goal is to be able to uh, respond and lead us in responding to the word in our context today so that we can understand how to respond to the word as individuals, how our families can orient themselves around the word, our city can orient itself around the word, how hopefully uh, the word will affect the way we view the whole world. So our focus for the next several weeks is on the theme of suffering and healing. That's what we're talking about. Themes of suffering and healing. We've titled the series Wounded Healer, which is a reference to Jesus and to his followers. They were wounded healers. Last week we looked at a story about trouble from outside the Christian community. 
It was an effort on the part of the religious establishment to silence the message and the ministry of the early Christian community. This week, we're going to the very next story in Acts, the very next sentence, which tells not about trouble from the outside, but tells a story about trouble from the inside of the Christian community. What kind of trouble is affecting the Christian community from the inside? Acts chapter 6, culturally rooted discrimination. (laughs) Right off the first sentence of Acts 6. People from one place who speak one language being overlooked or slighted by those from another place who speak another language. It is not exactly racial division, uh, uh, like specifically or strictly speaking, because everybody who is a part, almost everybody who is a part of the Christian community at this time is ethnically Jewish. But they've grown up, there's, there's people who are from, even though they're from the, from the same race, they've grown up in all kinds of different parts of the world, different cultures, different customs, they're speaking different languages, and that's all it takes, apparently, to introduce prejudice to a community. Even the early Christian community, where they're praying together every day, people are being healed from diseases every day, people are being freed from demonic oppression Every day, people are joining the church by hundreds. Every day, this is a really good time for the Christian church. And yet, what's also happening? Let's look at Acts chapter 6, verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, so what's happening? The church is growing. It's a big movement now. It's a couple hundred people about six weeks ago. Now it's many thousands of people. People are joining. It means they're converting to Christianity, this new sect The teachings of Jesus, they're embracing Jesus as Messiah for the first time, and they're doing this by the thousands. Uh, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews. What's that? Hellenistic Jews, they're ethnically Hebrew, but for generations they've lived in other parts of the world which were deeply influenced by Greek culture, and they speak Greek. They're Hellenist. And they're complaining against the Hebraic Jews. Who are they? Hebraic Jews are folks who grew up in traditionally Jewish neighborhoods. Uh, They speak Aramaic. Jesus spoke Aramaic. Apostles like John and Peter, they speak Aramaic. You could argue that the inner circle of the Christian community is Aramaic, is Hebraic, Hebrew. Um, But the movement is expanding beyond just the Hebrew Jews to expand into all these new parts of the world, including Greek-speaking Jews who complain. The word there is literally they, they grumble. They grumble. What are they grumbling about? They're grumbling because... End of verse 1, their widows were being overlooked. Sometimes your Bible says their widows were being slighted. And that's because the word there uh, that's translated overlooked or slighted definitely implies discrimination. Where were they being overlooked? In the daily distribution of food. So imagine the Christian church has this massive soup kitchen in Jerusalem, right? And they've set it up, the Christians have set it up to serve the poor among them. Luke writes in chapter 4 that there were no needy among them, not because there were no needy people, but because their needs were being met and their needs were being addressed. They were sharing everything. So the needs of people were being addressed, except as the church explodes from a few hundred to many thousand In other words, as the administration of the shared life of the community becomes more complex because it's growing so fast, some people's needs are being met more effectively than other people's needs. So what's the problem? 
Aramaic-speaking Jews, their widows are being cared for. But the Greek-speaking widows, not so much. Where's the dividing line? Well, where you grew up, right? The language you speak. What's the real issue here? It's cultural prejudice that's leading to discrimination. That's what's really going on here. So the complaint reaches the 12 apostles, right? And this is essentially what is said. Imagine this with me. Some Greek-speaking Jews come to the apostles and they say, hey, uh, you may not know this, but um, when the daily distribution of food is happening, some of our most vulnerable are being overlooked. Who is it? Well, it's our widows. Our widows are being overlooked. And so the servers, what they do is they come down the line. They line up all the widows because they're going to feed them their meal for the day. And they give this widow a piece of fish and like four matzo balls. And they give this widow a piece of fish and four matzo balls. And they give this widow a piece of fish and four matzo balls. And they get to this widow and they just give her one. And then they go to the next widow, and it's a piece of fish and four matzo balls. They get to another widow, it's just one, just one little matzo ball. Right. And uh, it's a pattern. We're noticing it's not random. Um, there's a consistent pattern. It's happening every day. Um, all of the servers seem to be doing it. It's becoming the way it is. It's becoming acceptable. Um, the widows getting the full meal are Hebraic widows, and the widows who are consistently being overlooked, well, they're the Hellenistic widows. And we're bringing this to your attention because it feels like our widows are being seen as less than, as less important than, as less human than the other, the other widows. When a Hebraic widow gets overlooked or shorted, she speaks up or somebody notices and they fix the problem right away. But when a Hellenistic widow gets shorted, even if she speaks up, nobody's doing anything, nobody's responding. It's like she's being treated as if she's second class, like she's a second-rate citizen, like her life doesn't matter as much as everybody else's. This way that this group of widows is being treated, it's different than the way the others are being treated. It's not the same. It's not fair treatment. So the implied question in this complaint is, is this the way it's going to be in the Christian community? Like, are we going to allow discriminatory practices that are rooted in cultural prejudice that exist everywhere in the whole world? Everywhere you go, you see this kind of thing. But are we going to allow those kind of discriminatory practices, are we going to allow those things to exist here in the church, in the Christian community? And are we going to allow that kind of behavior to become institutionalized here? Like, we're committed to healing all people, right? Unless they're not like us? Is that what this is really coming down to? Unless they're not like us? Okay, so evidently the apostles' response to this complaint is immediate and it's clear. No, that is not the way Jesus did it and that's not the way it's going to happen here in the church. That's verse 1. Verse 2, so the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables, which has always sounded a little harsh <laughs> to me, but there's no judgment there. There's no sense that our work is more important than your work. Their point is simply that Jesus called these 12 men to preach the word. And so they need to find someone else to address this legitimate issue, and it needs to be addressed immediately. Verse 3, they say this, Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. And I love this part, friends. I love this part, and I want to learn from this response. The challenge that the apostles 
need to figure out is who is going to handle the practical implications of the teachings of Jesus? Who's going to handle the practical implications of the gospel? These guys are going out and preaching the word. Who's going to handle the practical implications within the challenging, broken, real-life context of Christian community? Because that's where rubber hits the road, right? And, And then they put the decision to the community, which is so interesting. It's the first time I've seen that. They put the decision to the community. They do give them this guidance. What's the guidance? Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, or Antioch, who was a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who laid their hands on them, which is a sign of transferring authority to these seven men. Luke doesn't just say they chose seven guys and they took care of it. He records their names, and there's all kinds of significance around that, which I don't have time to get into, but let me tell you about two. Stephen, his story gets highlighted in the very next chapter of Acts. He's known as a powerful healer, and he becomes the first man to die because he's a representative of Jesus. He gets killed. Philip, key figure all the way through Acts, he's credited for taking the gospel to Ethiopia, taking the message of Jesus to Ethiopia. Nick Zerwas is going to preach on Philip next week. And then very little is known about the other five men. It is noted by many that all their names are Greek, which is interesting. Being Greek-speaking, however, was not the criteria given by the apostles. Now, the community chose them, so it's interesting that they chose Greek-speaking men to deal with a problem related to Greek-speaking widows. But realize this, that was not the criteria given. In other words, that was probably important, but it wasn't the most important. What was the most important? In other words, what is the solution to the problem of cultural discrimination? Because that's the problem. The solution is men who are filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom. You see that? That's the solution. That was the solution. That's still the solution. Men and women of God who will engage all kinds of injustice, which continue to infect humanity, not as Hellenistic Jews or Hebraic Jews, not primarily as part of this tribe or this club or this agenda, but as followers of Jesus Christ who are filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom. That's what we need. Amen? So the word of God spread, verse 7. The word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith, which is amazing and kind of funny, right? All right, three observations I share with you, just three observations this morning. First, uh, I'm tired. I'm tired. I'm going to be pretty transparent with you this morning and say that when I read this week's passage last summer, what stood out to me was the organizational dynamics of the early church, which enabled them to scale. (laughs) I was kind of in a different place mentally, right? When I turned to Acts 6 on Monday, just this last week, and I started working on this sermon, and I realized, oh my goodness, the first sentence is about prejudicial treatment. It's about discrimination based in prejudice. My first thought was this. I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to talk about it. I am 
already tired of talking about it. I'm, I'm talking about this every day. Uh, I'm talking about this every day as a father of biracial children. And I'm talking about this every day as a pastor. I'm talking about different perspectives in the church. We're talking about relational conflicts rooted in different perspectives in our church. We're talking about fear and anger and sadness, which is frankly what I typically talk about. But now all the fear and sadness and and anger is about one issue. It's about race right now. Different perspectives about race. Relational conflicts rooted in issues of race. Fear and anger and sadness having to do with cultural differences and ethnicity and background and the everyday kind of stuff that we're uh, all being surrounded with in, um, in our conversations in the news cycle. So I thought I want to preach about something else <laughs> this, this um, Sunday. That was my first thought. It's a revealing thought, isn't it? Some of you are like, oh, that tells us a lot about you. Um, yeah. And then I had two more thoughts. The next thought was, I may not want to deal with this issue because I'm tired. Um, but some of my Christian brothers and sisters, some of my family members, they don't have a choice whether or not they're going to talk about this issue. Right? They can't just choose to ignore this issue. It's not ignorable. And then the second thought I had was, if I'm going to read the Bible, I can't honestly ignore this issue either. Okay? Because it's everywhere. It's everywhere. If I try to ignore the problem of racial prejudice in the Bible, I will end up ignoring a central element of the Christian faith, which is that Jesus came to abolish the dividing wall between people. Jesus came to bring peace. This is one of the major themes of the New Testament. Jesus has come to do away with the old ways of seeing people according to class, according to race, and is inviting all people into a new way to be human. Paul talks about this quite a bit to the Ephesian church. He puts it like this. For he, he's talking about Christ, he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Paul goes on to say this. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. That's Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says this to the church in Galatia. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. Nor is there male and female. You are all one in Jesus Christ. Is he denying other parts of people's identity? No. He's saying that what needs to rise above those other parts of who you are is this ultimate distinction, your core identity, which is I am Christian, right? The issue of racial prejudice is all over the Bible. You can't ignore it, and you don't want to ignore it, friends, because if you do ignore the problem, you ignore the solution or you miss the solution, which is Jesus Christ. So, yes, I'm tired of talking about this because it's hard. And Christians who are also black or brown, they're tired of talking about this because it's hard. And Christians who also work in law enforcement, they're tired of talking about this because it's hard. Even though we're tired, we who are Christian 
We who are first and foremost followers of Jesus Christ, we must not ignore the problems. We must address the problems because we're the ones carrying the solution to the problems, which is peace through Jesus Christ. So, man, the ones with the remedy cannot run away from the ailment. We got to be the ones running to it. So, first observation, I'm tired. And I know, I know, many of you are way more tired than I am. Here's the second observation. I'm no expert. One of the questions I'm sure you've heard a lot of people asking in recent weeks, maybe you've asked it as well, as so much of our collective attention has been focused on the issues of racism in America, the question is, what can I do? Racism, racial injustice is such an old problem in our country. Uh, Racial division is such a big problem in our country right now. And what I see a lot of people and organizations doing is making a statement, at least one, right? Making some sort of announcement, posting something at least once. And the potential problem here is believing that by, you know, Instagramming a Martin Luther King quote, you've done your job, right? You somehow have fixed something. It feels like it could be like just checking the box pretty easily, considering yourself to be part of the solution when, when you're not. At least not by that action you're not. But even more people and more organizations are saying nothing. And one of the paralyzing factors here, in other words, one of the reasons is the feeling that If you're going to say something, you should have something brilliant to say. You should have some strategy that actually holds some weight. You should be able to contribute to the conversation in in some meaningful way and, and that you need to be an expert. And you have no unusual insight into this. You're not an expert and neither am I an expert. And so it's easy to consider ourselves unqualified to do anything. Is anybody with me on that? Friends, listen, if you're Christian, you are part of the only faith movement in the history of humanity which has actually offered a credible solution to the problem of racial animosity. If you're a Christian, you're a part of the only solution that has ever actually had teeth and traction on the issue of racial animosity. Jesus teaches it and then he demonstrates it. What's the message? Sacrificial love. Right? He says, stop defending yourselves, start serving others. And not just others that are like you, others that are not like you. Clearly the church has been guilty of all kinds of racial prejudices from the very beginning. It's even here in Acts chapter 6. But consistently the New Testament writers especially emphasize this profound truth, that Jesus came to abolish the walls that divide people, the animosity between group and that group, this class and that class, this race and that race. Followers of Jesus Christ are actually a part of a peace movement that is by definition for all people. For all people. The picture that we're given of heaven by John in the Revelation is this. This is the last book of the Bible. John writes, after this, I looked and I saw a multitude too large to count. Where's the multitude from? You see this with me? From every nation and tribe and people and tongue standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This is the vision of heaven given to us in the Bible. I'm no expert, we say. I don't know what to do. Well, here's a start. You're here, and you're worshiping Jesus, 
right? And you're adoring Christ, and, and you're seeking God's power, and you're seeking God's wisdom, and you're reading the word together, and we're pressing into relationships with one another. It's not vague and ethereal. It's real. It's practical. We got names. We're leaning into community, this community that loves one another, and you know that they love you because they brought you food when you had a baby, and they're taking care of you when you're sick. You know that they love you. And we're gathering here together to try to pursue Christ together, which means we're addressing our own sin, we're addressing communal sin, we're addressing societal sin, we're trying to grow in holiness together. Yes, we need to read more, we need to listen more, we need to learn more, we need to figure out what method we, we, each of us should use, what strategy each one of us should use in order to address the brokenness in the world. But here's my point here, don't miss this. As a Christian, I should not feel unqualified to deal with any kind of prejudice or any kind of division or any kind of hatred or any kind of discrimination. As a Christian... I should not feel unqualified to deal with any of that. Why? Because I carry the message of reconciling love. And love, practically applied, heals the suffering. In other words, what I'm trying to say is, I am no expert, and probably neither are you. But we don't need to be experts to bring healing. We need to be Christian. We just need to be Christian. We need to follow Jesus. First observation, I'm tired. Second observation, I am no expert. Here's a final observation. I just label it trials. Question, when does the church grow? Answer, in the midst of trials, friends. Acts 6, verse 7, the last verse we read. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Notice, when is this happening? If your chronology, your sense of timing in the Acts isn't super, isn't super clear, realize this. Jesus was killed a few weeks ago. The apostles are being threatened, jailed, and flogged. Okay? The church has been under assault from the inside and from the outside. People are lying to the apostles about how much money they're giving to the church, Acts chapter 5. Now there's prejudicial treatment in the distribution of food, Acts chapter 6. There's murmuring around the community. And an early Christian leader named John Chrysostom, he writes this, Notice the circumstances in which the number increased. It was in times of trial. Okay. That's when the church grows. That's when we grow. A couple months ago, the priests were shouting at Jesus, you saved others, why don't you save yourself? You healed others, why don't you heal yourself? Now these same priests are converting to following Christ. They're becoming obedient to the faith. When does the church grow? It grows in the midst of trials. Friends, we're in a growing season. We're in a growing season. I remember when I was a kid, my legs hurt all the time because I had growing pains. Remember that? We're in a growing season. This is growing pains time. This isn't the way it should feel in here with all this space between us. This is just growing time. This is a trial time. It's a growing time. This is when the church grows in times of trials. So may we not try to escape our current trials. And may we not try to avoid uncomfortable conversations about difficult issues. And may we not be defeated by the ramifications of COVID. And may we not be divided by hate, church. May we faithfully follow Jesus. May we be filled with the Holy Spirit and with wisdom. May God's kingdom come. May God's will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of Jesus who is the wounded healer. Amen. Amen.